Hello again. This is Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. I'm Jason Concepcion, and this is your guide to the galaxy from Trantor to Terminus and hundreds of millions of other worlds. Space is a big place. We aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything you see on the show. Each week, I'm recapping and breaking apart every episode of season two with Foundation showrunner and executive producer David S. Goyer. Hello again, David. Thank you for having me, Jason. And this week, you've brought along a special guest, Chris McLean, VFX supervisor in the show. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today, we are talking about episode five, Sighted and the Scene, uh, which I think is a wonderful time to talk about the visuals. Don't you all think? (laughs) (laughs) Good way to start it. Okay, let's recap the episode, which was written by Joelle Cornett and Jane Espenson and directed by Alex Graves. So we kind of checked out on Harry for a full episode, but now we're back with him, and he is back in a new body. Oh, you all right? He hasn't had legs in over a century. Harry wakes up, and he, Gale, and Salvor crash land, essentially, on the planet Ignis. Salvor has very bad luck with planetary landings. Lots of stuff going on on Trantor. Sarath tries to get more information on the failed assassination attempt against Empire. Sometimes I wonder where the shy, sad Princess Sarath went. She died with the rest of my family. That brings her into conflict with Demarzel and Day. Very dangerous. There is a, what can only be described as the most awkward attempt to, air quotes, copulate. Day's words, not mine. What if you want to, I don't know, get spanked? I imagine there are paddles around here that would leave the royal crest imprinted on one's bottom. I'll order some mace. <laughs> uh, she ends up engaged anyway. Day is still messing around with Demarzel, and we found out that Day, in fact, did order the murder of Sarath's family, and it was Demarzel who engineered the whole thing. Dusk reminisces with Sarath's advisor, Rue, about their date they had together years ago. Things are getting extremely interesting here in the present. We'll return to that. But this quickly leads him to a very confusing place, and he takes Dawn to talk with the hologram of Cleon I to basically ask him for advice on what's going on now in the Empire. And Cleon I basically says, you guys figure it out. I'm going back into my chamber. I am the memory of Cleon I. Who addresses me? Dawn and Dusk then head to the memory archives where they realize that for some reason that I can't wait to find out, Cleon I has... More than twice the amount of memories in pure storage as the rest of them are on track to have. This is concerning. Do you get the feeling that we are not on top of the heap anymore around here? Sarath, meanwhile, is very determined to find out as many of the palace's secrets as she can. She acquires a tape from the night of the assassination in which she discovers that Demerzel is in fact a robot because there she is with half a head. Huge deal because robots in human form were thought to have been wiped out. And then back on Ignis, the inhabitants of the planet ambush the Selden Dornick expedition. They wake up and we meet the Mentalics. Sorry, but I wanted to watch you without you watching back. Our episode ends with the reveal that their leader would like nothing more than to destroy the Prime Radiant. It's a good thing Harry told Gale to hide it. A wonderful episode. Just a really, really meaty episode. So much crazy story happens in this episode. We drop so many crazy cards about things. It's almost like five episodes worth. And um, 
just you summarizing it made a brought a smile to my face. I love the fact that clearly, you know, Dawn and Dusk are wondering what the hell is going on. Like, like this is all this information being withheld from us, and you know, are are we just whatever? Are we living in the Matrix? Are we hostages? Like, what is going on? Which is really fun. It's our shortest episode too. It is our shortest episode. Yeah. Uh, Chris, for for those of our listeners who might be unfamiliar with what a VFX supervisor does, tell us about your role. What's your day to day like? Um, the layman's version of that is is anything that they can't shoot, we create. So uh, you know, if we need to make you know a spaceship fly through space, we do that. If we need to rip Demerzel's face off, we have to help <laughs> out with that. We're we're kind of involved in every department, and you know. We're there at the beginning and we're there right till the bitter end. I mean, David's the only person who's on the show as long as we are. Chris is also a second unit director. Yeah, I, I did the uh, the exterior of Salvor escaping from Synax. Yeah. So oh, some, cool. of, some of the times we'll, we'll storyboard out the sequence and I'll, I'll say, okay, I'll do this. Chris, you do this shot. I'll do this. You know, and it's, everything's storyboarded out and... You, you did uh, at least a month worth of second unit in I season did two. At least 20 days, yeah. I mean, we're the only ones, myself and Chris and his team, that are on from soup to nuts. It's also interesting because Chris was the second hire, and that was over four years ago. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting, and I can say this because it turned out so well, that uh, <laughs> Chris wasn't the first choice. I think you were like the third choice or the yeah. fourth, fourth I, choice. I was third, yeah. And um, it's just because I was unfamiliar with Chris's work. And, and the first two VFX supervisors that I talked to passed because they just said, you guys are crazy. There's no way you can do this. There's no way you can accomplish this. I mean, they just said, you're completely insane. And I met with Chris and I had a really good feeling about Chris. And after season one, in the VFX world, I think people were just, we don't get me wrong, we spent a lot of money, but- yeah. We accomplished so much more than anyone possibly ever thought mm. we would accomplish visually, given our budget, because the other people that I had talked to before that said, oh, you're going to need double, triple the amount of money that you have in order to pull this off. And kudos to Chris and his team, because they absolutely pulled it off. And as people start to take in, in the breadth and scope of season two, I just think we upped the ante at least 30%, 40% again. And I cannot emphasize enough how valuable a component of the foundation team, you know, Chris and his crew are. I, I appreciate that, David. Do you recall what was in that first kind of presentation to the potential uh, VFX supervisors? What was the ask in there that you're saying, okay, here's what we're going to try to do. Can you do this? Well, I think they had read the first two or three episodes, I think three there was three, but I think it was after like the the Starbridge fall in in uh, episode one kind of put them all over the edge. <laughs> I mean, but but I I mean I looked at it and I knew that if we didn't spend a bunch of money on set extensions and because there's a lot of waste in visual effects and one of the things that we did with Rory Shane our production designer was is we made sure that we built everything big so that we didn't have to do fifty set extensions. We only had to do three. And then we could spend the money on the big stuff. That's kind of our formula for the show is shoot as much as we can. And then- you In know, camera. In camera. And then we then we go and do the visual effects and spend the money the way it should be spent. So 
Chris, for the listeners out there who may not be uh, aware of what this means, what's in-camera mean? Um, in-camera means shot on film or now shot on drive because everything's digital. But basically anything that we can capture practically or physically on set. So anything that we can shoot with a camera. Got it. But we're also really meticulous about there's so much visual development that goes on. You know, I, I remember while we were finishing shooting season one and we were contemplating season two, we'd spend all this time developing the way that jump ships would operate on season one. But then you sent me this image and you said, what if we did a, a triangular singularity, singularity yeah. which you said was like technically possible yeah, or theoretically I found, possible? I found a paper on it. I can't remember where, but I found some, and they said it did exist. And then I just thought dark side of the moon and we were ready to go. So, oh wow! Yeah. I mean, I, I we're really going down a geek rabbit hole, but wow. but that's that's the kind of stuff we talk about. Chris, it strikes me uh, listening to this conversation that in a in a environment filled with huge nerds, huge sci-fiers, <laughs> you might <laughs> you might be the biggest one of all. Uh, Definitely, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I like to think I'm cool, but I'm not. No, I mean that in a great way. Yeah. The, the shirt I'm wearing right now has cats with a UFO on it. So, I mean, <laughs> come on. Sometimes people have to pull us back from the um, event horizon of nerdiness. Uh, let's jump into the episode, which is a, a lot to chew on in this episode, as you mentioned. For me, the thing I came away uh, from this episode with as, as a theme is the unreliableness of, of memory, the impermanence of memory here. You've got the sure. metallics who are putting thoughts in people's minds, potentially editing their thoughts uh, as we go. We have Dusk and Dawn discovering that there is, it certainly appears as if their memories are highly edited. And then you have Body Harry, who is memories now placed back into a body. But let's start with the Mentalics, this incredibly antagonistic and very, very creepy and scary group. Tell us about adapting them for the screen. Well, the trick with this season is the Mentalics were something that Asimov introduced, but there's a hint that they exist. And then we kind of jump forward and suddenly they're just there. And we sort of flip to the other side of the spyglass and we are with the second foundation and they're just a force that actually exists. But in our show, we needed to see the second foundation be formed. We couldn't jump over that, whereas Asimov just elited all of that. And so potentially the metallics are kind of like the root stock from which the second foundation will grow because the second foundation have psionic and psychic abilities. But there are parallels to this kind of story because you can think of Gale as a mutant, which she is, yeah. in the same way that the mule is a mutant. And then for the first time, she's running into other people like herself. And we also thought it would be interesting to, we, you know, tell him comes on strong. She seems like a villain, but we're not entirely mm -hmm. sure. And um, all of this came about because we needed to show how the Second Foundation were formed. It's no fun if it's just easy for our heroes. It's got to be difficult. Uh, one of the tells that the mentalics are not presenting themselves perhaps as they they actually are is the fact that pa uh, cast no shadow was that one of the easier or harder things to do chris 
that shot was like the hardest shot in the whole season and probably our least favorite shot. It is. Yeah, no, it's, it was just such a weird angle that we had to try to do that. And we ended up like doing a last minute, like shuffle of shots to make it look better and actually kind of work. Um, but yeah, no, that should have been a simple shot that actually took way more versions than it should have to kind of get rid of the shadow that she was casting. But that falls under the category of you, you try to imagine every situation that you could possibly run into while you're making this incredibly complicated show and inevitably things go wrong and you realize we got to fix it in post, which is a phrase you hear a lot. And I think on our show, we do less of that, but it does happen. Well, how did you try to do it on the day? Well, I mean, they, they shot a, they shot a version of it. It it was kind of framed behind her and a little awkwardly and it was on a, tighter lens so it was very hard to tell the story that she was missing the shadow in front of her whereas you know it would have been nicer to have a a wider shot where you saw say gail salvor and and harry's shadows getting cast long and missing or something yeah in a perfect world you would have seen other people casting shadow in the same frame as her and then she conspicuously not casting a shadow but I'm, i'm curious jason because you pointed that out sure and you know, you're a not casual observer and like, did that shot jump out at you or did for you, was it just like no problem at all? It was no problem at all. I thought it worked really well because I didn't no- really notice it until Harry pointed it out and then right. you notice it and then it's like, oh yeah, that's weird. But it's so, it's so funny that you say that because we literally spent hours stressing out over it and doing like different variations of shots and trying to fix it. And yeah. and it's, I guess it's good and bad, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's good and bad, but it, it also illustrates, you know, like what the audience doesn't know, the audience doesn't know. And there's all this stuff that happens behind the scenes when we're doing this stuff where we're kind of freaking out and then you guys get to see it. And, and it's like, oh, this is actually kind of okay. Um, it was wonderful to spend time with Raish again, uh, as disconcerting as that interaction was with Harry You got them all fooled. They think you care about them. But the truth is, you don't care about anyone. They're all just points on a graph. It's why you're gonna fail. Because you don't care who lives or dies. You weren't meant to die. But you changed the plan. You implicated me. Because you didn't trust me. If you had, I would have lived. As it was, they shot me out the airlock like garbage. Is this a dream? Are they digging around in his head? Is this just a, a manifestation of his own guilt? I'm sure on some level that is true. What is going on here in this little interaction with Raish? It is, it's very true what Raish says to him. Well, um, he says it's not a dream, which is interesting. Yeah. And he's telling the truth there. It is a manifestation of his guilt, but I will say he's not having a hallucination. He's talking to someone. And the question is, who is he talking to? But I'll, I'll also tell you an interesting little side story of this is when we were filming season one, season one was interrupted by the initial COVID lockdown. So we'd filmed about the first three episodes. And then, I don't know, it took like a six month break. And then we came back and filled the rest. And during that time, myself and Jane Espenson, and I think Dana co-wrote the first four episodes of season two. And then we had, I think, an outline for episode five. And I was sitting there and we were shooting with the actor Alfie that plays Raish. 
And I said, you know, this is crazy. We've got him here. We've got the beggar set. We don't have an order for season two yet, but we should film this scene now. Oh, wow. And so I convinced everyone at Apple and Skydance, even though we didn't have a second a second season order, to film it now. So we filmed that scene two years before we went back and filmed the rest of the episodes. So that scene was in the bank and filmed and done. There are a couple of other scenes in season two that I also convinced everyone to do because I just said, you know, it'll, it'll be more expensive to recreate all of this. And fortunately it worked out and, and Scott and Apple went for it. But that is a peculiarity of sort of everything with Harry waking up up until the moment that he throws water in his face was filmed two years earlier. Wow. That is so crazy. It, it's bringing back that stabbing scene really reminds us of what an incredible thing that is to ask of someone. Yeah. And you see more of the scene right at the top yeah. of five than you did originally when you saw it in episode six of season one. Yeah. I, and I perceive that to be as something, you know, you're getting it from Harry's POV now, directly Correct. from his POV. Correct. We're really reminded of this father-son dynamic here. How much of that aspect of their relationship is is still haunting Harry to this day. I think he thinks about it every day of his new life or and his old life. I think Raish was the closest thing that Harry had to son him. I mean he he adopted him. He was his son. Yeah. And part of the thing that we're trying to get at this season with Harry as opposed to Dr. Selden is, you know, in episode one we saw a glimpse of Yana, his life mate. And now we see another flashback to Raish and as you say, we see more of what happened prior to his death, and he's clearly consumed with guilt. So even though he outwardly presents as this all-powerful guy who can remove himself from emotions, of course we all have interior lives and we have emotions. And so for Harry, season two is all about digging in and meeting the man behind the myth. Even at the same time, you're watching Dr. Selden literally play the part where he's mythologizing himself. And so that was very <laughs> deliberate that we're going in these two different directions. Um, I was really interested in the fact that it was Harry. It was his own kind of innate sense of danger and maybe a little bit of paranoia that allowed him to kind of suss out the Hugo illusion. And I must imagine this is going to be pretty deflating for Salvor, a person who is, you know, thinks of herself as so incredibly confident and capable to be kind of taken in by this emotional trick. So I have two questions for you, Jason. Sure. So the, sure. the first question is, as a viewer, and you're yeah. a pretty canny viewer, when Hugo first showed up and explained how he was there, did you buy it or not? It felt wrong. It, you know, everything about it felt <laughs> off. Uh, and like Harry, I wanted to know a lot more. It just felt like, and so you've been here a couple days and you went into cryo sleep. Okay. Uh, and I thought Harry's, you know, Harry's approach of, hey, so let's just go with some basic facts about yourself. Let's hear about those, Hugo. I thought that was very responsible and good. I, I wanted to know the same thing. It felt off to me. Okay, interesting. You you hit on an interesting point there in terms of you've you've got the episode starting with with Harry having this emotional sort of guilt-ridden exchange with his son, right, who's now dead. And then you have Salver also having this emotional exchange with someone who's close to her 
who also presumably is now dead. And so hopefully the audience is is kind of picking up on some thematic themes in terms of, <laughs> of what the mentalics are playing at or what Telen yeah. is playing at. You also get the idea that Harry isn't, uh, he, he may actually have more powers or it has a different power than the uh, the telepaths on, on the planet. Well, she's clearly, Telem is clearly yeah. worried about him. He's not like them, but he's seeing things that they don't see. Like he, he sees Hugo as a, as you're, you're whatever it was, three, three grams lighter than you should be. He sees through their illusions. Yeah. Chris, when the mentalics are, are applying their powers on people, are there any kind of, I don't want to say tells, obviously that's a spoiler, but are there, are there any kind of tonal things in there that are clues for the audience that uh, maybe the mentalics are messing with people? Yeah, um, we, we, we had a set of detuned lenses on set that we used for, mm. uh, we created a visual language for when they were affecting people or being affected in a bad way by the mentalics. And um, we shot some stuff with it, some stuff without it. And then we had to figure out how to recreate it after the fact. In because, visual effects. In visual effects, because we hadn't, um, we, we hadn't shot every scene that needed a little bit of it in it with those detuned lenses. So we had to um, come up with a, a, a visual effect that worked for that. Um, and I think we, you know, hopefully you can't tell where, where the detuned lenses were used and we were adding it. So, but if, but you are both, that's correct. Good yes. perception because it, there's, there's a subtle little thing going on. And if you go back and watch the episodes and, and that, that effect emerges, you should be suspicious. <laughs> mm, I love it because it strikes me that before they even encounter the mentalics, for sure, Harry is thinking, hide the prime radiant, hide it where I don't know where it is, give mm -hmm. it to the person that maybe they have trouble reading her mind and have her yeah. hide it. The other interesting thing you talked about memory and redacted memory is that one of the other things that Harry says, because they ask him, how is it that he has a new body? Yeah. And he says, I don't know. One moment I was in a cave, weightless, right? And yeah. the next I was in the rock and I have a new body. And so he also has redactive memory. And so that's, you know, we like to play around with these themes from episode to episode. And there's kind of almost all of our characters are dealing with some version yeah. of that in this episode. Well, let's go to the Empire where that is a, a, a really present issue as dawn and dusk come up against the question of, are all our memories there? Is someone fooling with them? It certainly seems as if, looking at the files, that we have something less than half the memories that Cleon the first have. This must be extremely unhinging, unmooring for dawn and dusk. Yeah, it seems like Cleon the first just has a lot more memories yeah. than all the Cleons that came after him. And so the question that the audience should be asking themselves should be the same question that Dawn and Dusk are asking themselves is, well, what would they redact from us? We're, right. We thought we were copies, but there were, were clearly incomplete copies. Obviously, that's something that we plan to explore in the latter half of the season. I mean, I my personal theory, and you are obviously not going to tell me if this is correct, but it seems to me like the only person that could be editing them would be Demarzel. They wouldn't, you can't entrust this to any of the just regular imperial staff members or archivists. That's too, feels too dangerous. But to what end, I 
I am fascinated to find out. But it feels like it's got to be her. Um, that's a good theory. <laughs> and I will, I will say that those questions will be answered by the end of the season. Um, do you have, as we see different versions of Cleon, and now we have seen several different versions of Cleon, but do you have any personal favorites, Chris and David, of, of which of the Cleons has ruled the empire that we've seen so far? Wow. Um, I mean, I like this day. He's the most colorful day that we've seen so far. Um, (laughs) He's so outrageous and so egotistical and so puffed up. So he's, he's really fun to watch. I like Cleon the first, you know, we, we haven't seen Cleon the first much, right? We saw him in some flashbacks in episode 103 and we see him again when they talk to him here in episode five. And, you know, you will see Clan the first again as our show progresses. He's really interesting too, because what kind of motivations would go into a guy who would set up this crazy system? Absolutely. And that's, yes. that's something that we're going to unpack. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't necessarily know. It, it's not who ruled, but, you know, our, our dawn and dusk in this season, you know, they're just kind of like the ho- hapless and hopeless lovers. Yeah. You know, each of them. Both of them, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also kind of fun. We we talked about in the writer's room, like, we're going to do this sort of mini mystery thread, and they're going to be like, Dusk is going to be Sherlock Holmes, and Dawn is going to be Watson. And so that kind of is how they function. And it's like, don't say anything. Just, are we in danger? I don't know. Just, you know, or are they like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? You know, one of the two. I um I loved the moment with Cleon the First hologram or sliver of his memory or, you know, however that manifests. You are one man. If you become divided, you dishonor me and what I devised. To be united is your natural state. To envy day is to envy yourselves. Genetically, we are identical. But in our temperaments, we must account for variations. And this day, he... He allows our domineering side to be... I am aware of my own temperament and their many shades. They are accounted for. (laughs) It's just something about the way he's just like, oh, I see, the brothers are fighting. Okay, what, what is it now? And he's just so put upon by this whole thing, like, guys... Can't you just like figure it out? I'm going back to sleep. It's very, very funny to me. Uh, Chris, I what, how did you create this kind of hologram looking guy? How did you create this, this image? Well, again, this is where we tried to do as much in camera as possible. We, uh, so Cleon the 16th, we shot him basically talking against the double, uh, you know, and we would shoot over the double and do it that way. And then we uh, put Terry in his Cleon the first makeup and robe. And then we shot the reverse with the double. The ones that we had to do here were when he disappeared and when he appears. Uh, the rest was mostly lighting and mm. uh, camera trickery. It's, it's something that we've done quite, and we're going to do a lot more of, but yeah. They were a pain in the butt because you have to shoot the scene twice. Sometimes even three times if, yeah. if you've got a you know hologram involved. And so... They're definitely a pain in the butt because you've got to recreate the scene. And sometimes you don't have the advantage. In a perfect world, you'd shoot the other half of the scene the next day. But sometimes because of scheduling, you go back and you're shooting it three weeks later, six weeks later. And so they're a pain. I love the scene uh, with uh, Dusk as Day with Rue, this kind of 
uh, remembrance of their dalliance. Uh, Dusk later says, when a man is old, he doesn't care what he remembers. He cares how he's remembered. At the end, we're all just memoriams. You're not dead yet. <laughs> Your legacy isn't set. When a man is old, he doesn't care what he remembers. He cares how he's remembered. And at the end, we're all just memoriams. Perhaps Day did you a favor giving away your chair. Well, now you can have what I always wanted. What did you want? Whatever young man was. A life. How does Dusk, this Dusk, want to be remembered? What does he think of as his legacy at this point? Well, that's, I think, what the journey that all Dusks go on, right? Yeah. And probably the journey that most of us human beings go on. I think the things that we think are important when we're younger and middle age, as we get older, we realize maybe aren't so important. And you think about your legacy. Yeah. What you did or how you will be remembered. And that starts to become more important than, you know, how many spaceships or planets are are in your, you know, planet garage or something like that. But it's also as we alluded to earlier, this dusk is kind of being shown the exit door, mm-hmm. you know, a good 20 years before normally he would be shuffled off the stage because of the impending marriage with Sarah. So he's being forced into this reverie even earlier than he normally would. He's not at death's door. You know, Day is breaking the rules by bringing in someone that he's right. going to have an ongoing relationship with. The rule is... You have a dalliance for a night and then they erase their memory and then you go on to the next. And so I think Dusk is thinking, well, if Day's going to break that rule mm. and he's going to have an ongoing relationship with Sarah, screw it. Why can't I rekindle my relationship with Rue and and have an ongoing relationship with her? I mean, that's less of a, a crime or, you know, less coloring outside the yeah. lines than what Day's doing. It also strikes me as it's something of a return to the kind of impetuousness of dawn you know if well if day's going to break the rules i can return to this emotional connection i had well and they're all the same guy right yeah so this this dusk was also a dawn you know yeah. 60 years ago and and probably was a lot like cleon the 18th who's currently dangerously flirting with sarah I think with his, like, with what they find out in this episode, though, with their, they're missing half their memories, or they assume that's what's happening, it might change his motivation a little For bit. For sure. Oh, yeah. Because at the end of that scene, they say they wonder if either of them are even safe. That's where they're starting to wonder, do you think Day could have us whacked? Yes. <laughs> Strong yes. Um, I want to ask a little bit more about Cleon the first. How does he work what are the is he like a ai is he like a chat gpt situation is there any (laughs) consciousness there or is it just like ask the question here is what cleon might have said based on his history of utterances i mean i know in the writer's room we've had disagreements what what do you think chris and then i'll tell you what i think i i think he's uh more more like a uh create your own adventure book he is programmed to say certain things I think I think he's all pre-programmed to say certain things like, you know, I can't answer that, ask a different question. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So I don't think he's an AI in the way that Selden is. Right. I think he's canned responses. You know, he's the Cleonic Wikipedia. <laughs> 
let's talk about Sarath and Day and this very, very awkward, almost sex scene between Day and Sarath. I laughed out loud. <laughs> the line that made me laugh hardest so far in this season is Day saying to Demarzel with this kind of like childish delight, she wants to copulate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come in, Sarath. I've been anticipating you. Thank you for agreeing to this. I understand that matters of romance are important to young ladies. The inner sanctum. This is one of my favorite scenes in the whole season. It's a scene that we spend a lot of time on in the writer's room and doing lots of revisions in because it's a scene that takes so many different, both comedic and dramatic twists and turns. It starts off funny you know, in terms of day and Demerzel kind of pre-gaming all of that, which, you know, she wants to copulate and he actually looks nervous and she says, you'll be fine. And then she does that little fist pump, you know, before she goes into her secret passage. And then, and then Sarah comes in and it, it's still kind of funny. And I love the little moment that Lee does where he sort of re-situates himself on the bed, you know, in order to kind of more properly manspread. And, and then the scene starts to turn as Sarath is wandering around and they're having this banter. And then there's a moment where you see Day kind of grok what she's doing in there. Yeah. You know, I think the audience starts to get a little more nervous for her. And there's a point where he stops and 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 then he says, I know what you're doing. And then he just calls her on it. And then he gets really intense. And then you wonder, oh my God, is he going to have her killed right there or what's going to happen? And then it just escalates and escalates and escalates and escalates. And then they're screaming at each other. And I remember on that particular day, I just came in. I was like, dude, they got it louder, faster. <laughs> you know, they just got to be screaming at each other to the point at which, and you can still see it in some of the shots, Ella Ray, just a bunch of spit came out of her mouth and, and hit Lee's face. And he said, no, 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 keep going. And, and so we had to erase some of the spit from his face, but some you can still see a glimpse of. And then you don't know whether he's going to strangle her or shoot her or what. And then they say, fine, fine. And then it's like a lover spat and she runs out. And then it gets funny again. Yeah. For me, it perfectly encapsulated the kind of breadth that I was hoping to introduce into the show with season two. Is I, I wanted to show that we could do farcical scenes and bedroom spats and black humor, that we could just run the gamut. And I felt like the show was big enough to sustain that. And I think, you know, it's a testament to Jane Espenson did a lot of that work in there and then to Alex directing it and to Ella Ray and Lee because they really, really, really pulled it off. And if you looked at any scene in season two that encapsulates what I was hoping to do in terms of moving the ball forward with the show, that is the scene that does it. The exchanges tell you so much about these characters. There's the moment you mentioned how Day all of a sudden understands what she's doing. But there's a moment right before that where he's still in foreplay mode, kind of, and he brings up that all her family members died as a, as a means of kind of foreplay. And it yeah. is such a tone-deaf yeah, thing for him to say. And it gives her the opening to say, oh, it's so interesting that you know about that. Let's yeah. talk more about that. Yeah, That was such a compelling moment for me. He's totally underestimating her. He thinks she's a lightweight. But I also love how the scene starts with saying she wants to copulate. And then it, it once we come back all the way around to the end of the scene, in a very similar way, he looks up to Demerzel and says, we're engaged. 
And so we went from like that, <laughs> that to we're engaged. I am turning Trantor upside down. I will find the traitors. You've been searching for days and you've found nothing yet. Excuse me, Empire, but I am not reassured. You're declining my offer of marriage. Say it now. And sign my own death warrant. Find your traitor and vow to make it safe if you can, and I accept. Of course I can. This I vow. Then I accept. Now leave. Something that I got out of it, I don't know if you meant to do this, David, is so episode one, you set him up as like this rock star in bed. You know, he's he's having sex and then he has the fight, right? Yep. So, you know, he's he's doing all that, uh, all of that. And you think, oh, he's just going to, this is going to be a sex scene. And then you realize that when he actually starts interacting with a real woman, it gets really awkward and strange. And it's like, it's this weird kind of almost like he's a, he's a virgin having sex for the first Completely. time. I yeah. mean, that was totally intentional is he's, yeah. he's wholly ill-equipped to actually have intercourse with a real woman. I mean, cause he's just been with a robot the whole time. I found it really masterful the way that Sarah kind of jujitsu's day into basically saying, fine, I'll look for the assassins, which it, yes. in a way it suggests that he's been <laughs> surprisingly lax at trying to figure out like who killed him. And the way she says, well, you know, this is going to be my home. I want to feel safe here. I don't feel safe here. They came into your very bedroom and tried to whack you. And yet, where are they? You know, how plugged in has he been in the investigation to find out who tried to kill him? It feels like he's just kind of let that go. Look, this day is a hot mess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean he's a bonehead this yes. day. And he's flailing around and he is not nearly as smart or as canny as he thinks he is. And it's just all steroids and puffery with him. Chris, while we have you here, um, I want to ask a couple questions about visual effects from earlier in the season. Um, that shot from episode one, of Demarzel with half of her head. How'd you achieve that with the actress who plays Demarzel, Laura Byrne? So, uh, Laura and us, we kind of have this weird relationship where we have to interact a little bit more than I normally would with an actor because we have to do all of this visual effect tomfoolery with her. And uh, the shots like this and sequences like this, they're all about getting her to perform with this weird stuff on her body. So, for this, we had... Um, We had to put half her head in a black sock and then they put a prosthetic edge around her. uh, Where the cut would be. Yeah, where the cut would be. And then we just had her perform with this, uh, with this on. And then we covered her with uh, what is this kind of golden black blood that she had all over her Mm -hmm. uh, during the, during the fight. And then, you know, she kind of tweaked out a little bit and did her kind of, you know, moving and things like that with her hands and, and kind of. Like fritzy robotic stuff. Yeah. So we did that and then we shoot clean plates, which means shooting whatever's behind her head or what would be there. So you can replace where the void, right? Because her head's not there. So in order for the effect to work, you need to see what's behind her head. So you need to shoot the scene again without her in it. Oh, wow. And and sometimes they, uh, you know, the other actors have to act. Sometimes they don't, which is usually very difficult and very hard to do. But um, the team at Outpost, uh, you know, designed the cut and and tracked it onto her head and rendered and lit it in CG and composited it in. And that's what ended up in the show. Oh, nice. And then how would you say on average, just on average, Mm -hmm. how many 
iterations of a VX, VFX shot? I know some are more than others, but I'm just curious how many actual iterations of a shot might you see before it's done? Probably 25 to 30. That's for every shot. Wow. And then I, I might see three. Yeah. Right? For, and we have over 3,000 shots in the season. So that's how wow. many iterations of a shot are happening. Uh, tell us about the character design, the, the creature design of Becky. Uh, well, Becky started out as, you know, she's a bishop's claw. So she was in yeah. season one. We saw the wild version of that. So, you know, kind of riffing on the way that humans uh, domesticated dogs, we decided that bishop's claws would be domesticated 150 years after um, they settled on Terminus. So, you know, introducing Becky being ridden by Constant, you know, you see that they're kind of, they become protectors and also a mode of transportation. I mean, they're vegetarians, even though they have big gnarly teeth, but they got they need that to kind of tear apart the uh, the terminus like. Yeah, I so. imagine the pincers are they are used to sort of dig a, yeah. dig into the ground, and it's interesting though. But like in episode two, we introduce one of these things, and so you think about how the hell are we going to pull that off? And so we started talking about well, you know, she's she's got to ride something. We call it a buck, like a something that's going up and down, and. Because we were initially shooting in Ireland, we had some people that worked on Game of Thrones and they had this device that was like like a saddle in the, the middle part of a horse. And so we tried that out. And the problem is, as Chris pointed out, is like on a horse, you, you sort of go up and down, backwards and forwards. But Becky's physiognomy is closer to a cat and their hips go more from side to side. So we were saying, no, 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 no. This thing has to go from side to side instead of front to back. And so we've got all these videos of us trying it with like the Mark I version of the buck with constant riding in. And we felt like the motion didn't look accurate. And then we rebuilt another one where it was horizontal and we thought that looked yeah. better. And um, we, it ended up, we ended up turning the buck sideways and then having it rock and made it a little less side to side than what we had originally yeah. called for. But yeah, it, it was basically a horse a horse buck that you would put an actor on that we turned sideways and then pushed around in a field to get the motion. If you imagine, yeah, like a like one of those saddles at those Western bars that people ride in like, you know, it, we, it's like we had something like that and then we had it on a trailer that would, so that would go from side to side and then, and, and then Izzy, who's playing constant, would sit on top of that and then you have a bunch of grips in front and behind it sort of pulling that and pushing it and <laughs> You wouldn't believe that all that nonsense was going on in order to get those scenes right, but that's what we do. Yeah. Well, Chris, thanks for all the work you and your team do. All right, it's time for another round of Building the Foundation, our light speed game of questions at the end of the podcast. Buckle up, Chris. Here we go. Show you one. To build be allowed to build your foundation. You're supposed to be the one. Why did you put her in the park? You want to be in control? You know nothing! This episode got me thinking, at what age does day transition into dusk? So roughly 30, age 30, dawn will go to day, and age 60, mm -hmm. day will go to dusk. And then we kill dusk, I don't know, somewhere between 90 and 120 or something. <laughs> this is subtle, but now that the genome has been altered, that sort of expiration date is moving sooner and sooner. Mm. Uh, the Metallics, you mentioned them as being kind of like mutants. So are they born or are they made? Born. Um, 
if a mentalic was messing around in your head, would you even feel it at all? Would there be any fingerprints? Would it be like a headache, a high, or hallucination, or couldn't they get in and get out? If it were a good mentalic, you wouldn't you wouldn't know. Wow. And we spent a long time coming up with the rules of what a mentalic can and can't do. And you'll start to learn about those rules in the next episode. Ah. Um, the archivist, the Imperial Memory Archivist, do they get to look at the memories or is it just files? They get to look at the memories, but then their memories are edited themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, every time they go home at night, they get their minds wiped. Yeah, too. yeah. I mean, that's one of the interesting things we mentioned, right, in the, I think it's the previous episode, or it might even be this episode, with the Clavager. Clavagers are the kind of singular name of the members of the dynastic cohort, which are sort of like mm -hmm. the Imperial Guard, is that they have their memories audited daily. Wow. To make sure that they're not doing anything they shouldn't be doing. And then inspired by what's in the vault, where did Gail hide the Prime Radiant? Where'd she hide it? You're also going to get the answer to that later on. <laughs> uh, and I think it's pretty damn clever, actually. I'm sure it is. Thanks so much for joining us, David and Chris. We'll be back next week covering episode six. Thanks for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Ben Goldberg. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Darby Maloney is our editor. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Music by Carly Bond with additional music provided by Apple. And I'm Jason Concepcion. Thanks for listening. We thank you for our lives. <laughs>